Hey folks, I'm so happy to see you. Today, we will be dismantling the romanticism of Amish and plain folks in TV shows, movies, books, and media. So, grab your hats and bonnets, hold your bucky seats, make sure your horses are well watered, make sure you have plenty of water to drink, and don't be surprised if you feel the need to have a brand new old-fashioned after this. It's time to giddy up and go. Let's start this show. Good evening, everybody. We have Stephanie Cravel here again because we want to start off the new year properly. You know, we gotta we gotta just really talk about how we're a little bit disobedient. Although that's a bad word, huh, Stephanie? Yes, it's terrible. <laughs> what about it? It's so terrible. <laughs> you know what? You know what I'm realizing? Um, I can hear, like, my, my dad is watching this downstairs, and I can hear it through the vent. So I need to put a pillow over the vent just a second. <laughs> I'm visiting my parents right now. Uh-oh. Hi, Stephanie's parents. Thank you so much for borrowing uh, or allowing Stephanie to be a little disobedient today. We yeah. greatly appreciate your sacrifice here. <laughs> Okay. I think we're good now. Yeah. Yep. So, so last time we were kind of watching this video that I had recorded with Harvey Yoder. I don't know if some of you have seen it, whatever. We started, we stopped off at about 20, 29 minutes, but I was going to restart it a little bit before we stopped off and then we can go from there. Sure. Do you have anything else you want to say before we start this um, train um, wreck? Yeah. I mean, I just want to, I just want to offer my um, like wishes of courage and hang in there with us to survivors who are watching because I know it's a, I know it's tough, um, and the reason we're doing this is just so that you have some understanding of like the reasons why you don't <laughs> you don't have to absorb this kind of. Um, manipulation and spiritual abuse Correct. you know it's that's that's what we're committed to doing and like you get to pace yourself if you're watching this and it just you're like no this is not what it's i want for you like, you can always come back and watch it later like this is this is for survivors and it will be available afterwards it'll be available on the website youtube facebook like all all different platforms and you can watch it as slow as you want to. You don't have to watch it. If it's too much, it's too much. Be gentle to yourself. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. really important that you're gentle to yourself. So, okay. Should we brave the firestorm? Let's do it. Uh, is there no volume? Completely goes away. You know, maybe when they become geriatric somewhere. Well, and even then, I've worked in a nursing yeah, home before. Yeah, I'm yeah. telling you, nope, nope, exactly. doesn't go away. Um, so, 
uh, I, I just think uh, it's the kind of thing where we have to practice a great deal more diligence in terms of providing accountability. Obviously, unless we, you know, uh, put these you know, have these people serve life sentences and be locked away, or if we, uh, if, you know, they, if we uh, have them experience the death penalty or something, they're going to be around somewhere. They've got to be, they've got to have the kind of accountability that an oversight that is rigorous for their own good. Hold up. What is this rigorous oversight he's talking about? I don't know. I mean, I would I would ask him that. I would like to know what he means by that. Okay. Well, continue any day now. I don't remember if I... Um, what is it doing? No. Well, let's see. Because there was a part in here where I think we missed it. These research no. articles about. On committing an offense at some point in their life, even though they might thoroughly repent, uh, acknowledge their wrong, uh, you know, make whatever restitution possible, that the possibility of uh, reoffending never completely goes away. You know, maybe when they become geriatric somewhere. Well, then even then, I've worked in a nursing even home then. before. You got something to say? Me? Yeah, you. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm just shaking my head at like the third time hearing him say maybe when they become geriatric because it's like we we know <laughs> we know sometimes the geriatric offenders are the most dangerous one because everybody like lets them get away with everything and 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 assumes that they can't do anything and I, I'm so sick of that misconception so I, that's thank you thank yeah. you for sharing and, that and you, you tried to insert that, and he was not really interested in finding out what your nursing home experience was. Funny. Interesting. Anyway. Yeah, very interesting. I, yeah, I have my own nursing home experiences. Yeah, I'm telling you, nope. Nope, exactly. doesn't go away. Um, so uh, I, I just think uh, it's the kind of thing where we have to practice a great deal more diligence in terms of providing accountability. Obviously, unless we, you know, uh, put these, you know, have these people serve life sentences and be locked away, or if we, uh, if, you know, they, if we uh, have them experience the death penalty or something, they're going to be around somewhere. They've got to be, they've got to have the kind of accountability that an oversight that is rigorous for their own good, as well as the good of the community. And, and it's not unlike, children. it's not unlike uh, an addiction, like, uh, you know, drug addiction or something, or alcohol. And as you know, that uh, one of the 
first things that is said in every AA meeting by every attender, my name is Harvey Yoder and I'm an alcoholic. You know, just recognize that even though I might have been sober for 10 years, I recognize that I am vulnerable to reoffend and I need the support and accountability provided by you know, open kind of connections with people like in an AA group. So you think that sex offenders and especially child sex offenders are, they have an addiction? Well, I, you know, I, uh, I don't know whether the addictions in those two cases I mentioned, and that is uh, drug or substance abuse addiction and sex addiction are necessarily identical but I think there is a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarity. And uh, we have to respond, you know, again, unless we get rid of sex offenders and just lock them up or, you know, end their life, we're going to have to find some way as communities who are caring and responsible to make sure that they are protected and the victim. Okay, let's talk about this. What is he trying to get at with, like, this is an addiction? Well, so you you asked him to clarify, and then he proceeded to, I mean, I did, did I hear this right? It, he said, well, okay, it's not drug addiction and alcohol addiction. Maybe we shouldn't equate those with sex addiction. And I'm like, did you just equate sex addiction with perpetration of sexual abuse? Because that was a big step. What's going on there? That's not, like... That con that conflation is very problematic, and it is it is a mainstay of plain communities enabling offenders to act as though sex sexual abuse it can be understood as an addiction, and sex offenders need to be treated as addicts. Again, we're ignoring the abuses of power, and clinically, that conflation is, you know. At this point, pretty passe. I don't know if that's that's the, you know, <laughs> the mode through which he's operating when he treats offenders. If that's what he does, but just talking about it like an addiction means that you're gonna you're gonna ignore some of the deep motives behind sexual abuse. I that's it's troubling to, yeah. Mm. And let me ask you this because you were a liberal Mennonite, right? Yeah, so, I mean, I, yeah. Yeah, so so did they consider, like, homosexuality to be a sex addiction problem? Like, I mean, some people, like, if, are you talking about, like, Mennonite Church USA? Yeah, something, whatever, whatever I you're mean, familiar with. There's no, Mennonite Church USA has people who are all over the map when it comes to LGBT inclusion. And they're certainly, like, I mean... Harvey is is somebody who be a member of that denomination. I mean, he's part of Virginia Conference. Um, there are certainly people who have those who have those conflations. This idea that you know homosexuality is a disease that needs curing, or like a besetting sin, or what like whatever language they use. Yeah, I mean, there's there's that, and then you know at the under then there are openly gay. Um, pastors also in Mennonite Church USA. I mean, mm -hmm. like it depends on what individual conference they're in as to how 
how well that goes in terms of acceptance from conference leadership, but um, there's a lot of ideological diversity within within that denomination that I think would feel just completely bizarre um, to people from plain communities where, you know, ideological consensus seems to be pretty much demanded. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it has a much wider variety is what you're telling me. It does. And I, you know, Harvey being in Virginia Mennonite conference, there's, you know, there, I mean, there's a variety um, yeah, of like, <laughs> there's a variety of, of churches even within that conference, but that conference generally has very conservative leadership. So, I mean, Harvey is within a Mennonite conference that is more on the conservative end of things, but yeah, there's within MCUSA, there's a, I mean, they've been there's fighting. A, there's a wide, it's yeah. like the alphabet soup of like, yeah. okay. Yeah. I would say overall, I would say the denomination itself, I, I still would not recommend it as a safe place for LGBT people at all. But like individual churches are kind of all over the place. Okay, that's fair. So we have a commenter that says sometimes prison is the right kind of accountability where they're watched 24-7. Mm-hmm. I, I would have to agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I have worked in nursing homes. One nursing home, an older male resident had been a a pimp in his younger years. So gross. Yes. Yes. I can tell you that there are people in nursing homes that are very much offenders. Yeah. I mean, any, like, any, like, people who work in nursing homes know that the idea that there's no such thing as geriatric offenders is a lie. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, shall we continue? Sure. Let's keep going. If it'll start. Why does it do this? I have problems, guys. Well... I guess we're a little bit technologically impaired. Maybe it's a uh, spiritual interference. <laughs> it's the witchcraft portion of tonight's show. <laughs> we're, we're not supposed to be watching this. Um, that's the problem. Mm. We're, oh, there we go. Okay. So where were we at? Let's, let's see. I think. Oh, wait, is there's no sound. Let's try that again. We're having fun. Sorry, people. I'm the greatest. I never said I was a good technological person. Let's let's try it again. You know, or something. Can you hear that? Alcohol. And as you know, that. One yeah, a little. First things that yeah. is said in every AA meeting by every attender, my name is Harvey Yoder and I'm an alcoholic. You know, just recognize that even though I might have been sober for 10 years, I recognize that I am vulnerable to reoffend and I need the support and accountability 
provided by you know, open kind of connections with people like in an AA group. So you think that sex offenders... We already heard this. The addiction in those two cases I mentioned, and that is uh, drug or substance abuse addiction and sex addiction are necessarily identical. But I think there is a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarity. Yeah, he did. Uh, he did do that. Done, you know, again, unless we get rid of sex offenders. He really did. To lock them mm -hmm. up or end their life. We're going to have to find some way as community. thoughts and prayers help. The victims are protected and responsible to make sure that they are protected. And Did he just come on my stream and say to make sure sex offenders are protected? Is that what I just heard? I don't know. I, I It may have been victims. I, I didn't. Let's, okay, let's go back. Go back. <laughs> and uh, we have to respond, you know, again, unless we get rid of sex offenders and just lock them up or, you know, end their life, we're going to have to find some way as communities who are caring and responsible to make sure that they are protected and the victims are, for goodness sakes, uh, protected. Yes, yes, he really did. He really did. All right, can you enlighten me? What does this mean? Why are we protecting sex offenders? Well, there's there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on there. Um, so I I'm the way that he's talking about locking getting rid of sex offenders and locking them them up and he's sort of setting that up is like well unless we do this we've got to figure out a way to deal with them and i i'm there's a lot going on because like there i um you know i would say the same thing in a lot of ways like it is unrealistic and you know in a lot of ways i think excessively punitive or in a <laughs> i mean prison in and of itself is not the solution to stopping sexual violence it's one one tool but you know prison itself is a place where a lot of sexual violence happens so you know there's that like you can't our our legal our criminal legal system is is a mess when it comes to getting offenders behind bars and sentences. I mean, it, we, we have, we don't have evidence that as a widespread solution, prison is working. So I'm not saying that because I don't think that, you know, people who commit sex crimes should, I'm not arguing that nobody should go to prison. What I'm saying is it isn't. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in a lot of ways, it, it is. is. It is. I mean, although it can, you know, right. it can also make them suspect. I mean, th there's a whole other discussion about what happens to sex offenders in prison, and I'm not an expert on it. But I guess what what I'm saying is that <laughs> prison is only one 
he's right that it's not the only solution, because if we say that the only solution is prison, then we're stuck without any other modes of accountability. And frankly, our system will fail us. Like it's, it's, it's not a solution because the, we can't like the system isn't built. It was never built to hold all sex, sex offenders accountable. Our laws protect sex offenders to a large extent. So, so I get that he's, you know, saying, well, we need to have more solutions, but I don't think that he and I are coming from the same place when we say, well, unless we're going to lock them up or kill them, we have to have more accountability solutions. I think he's setting, you know, I think he, <laughs> the fact that he moved from that to, well, we have to protect offenders and we have to protect victims. And I'm like, how many times are you going to conflate the two in your, like, yeah, go ahead. I think that part of like, you know, we have all of these sexual crimes that occur and it's like not just an Amish or plain people problem, but there are certain unique things that happen with an Amish and, you know, Anabaptist churches. Right. And so mm -hmm. those are unique to our experiences. And those are things that we can speak about with clarity. Right. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to solutions, what are the solutions? Do we have like, um, let's say, any type of like perpetrator um, counseling available outside of a prison system? Do, do we have that available outside of the prison system for perpetrators? You mean in society in general? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we have nearly enough solutions outside of, out of prison. And I like, does counseling work for perpetrators? Like that's what I would like to know. Yeah, I mean, lifetime therapy, sure, the right kind of therapy, therapy that is about accountability. Because frankly, often I, you know, as somebody who works with lots of survivors, I hear lots of like, it's it's not that like perpetrators never go to therapy. Often, especially if they're skilled manipulators, perpetrators manipulate their therapists. Truth. Um, I'm 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 gonna go out on a limb and say possibly that's happened to our, our friend Harvey in the past, given I that I I really I I think he's mischaracterizing <laughs> sexual perpetration of sexual abuse as sexual addiction and the idea that like yes I'm I'm not going to argue that sex addiction is never present but that is a completely like therapeutically unsound conflation so you know it has to be the right kind of therapy but also like the thing that we focus on it into account always is like, okay, whatever happens in the legal system, we may or may not have power over that. We have very little power in the system at large. What we can do is take away authority, access, and regard. And, you know, the, the person's authority within the community, their access to vulnerable populations, the the good regard of the people in the community in order to take those things away you have to have transparency and you have to have people who are willing to say you can't come here because you abuse children you know you can't come you can't teach sunday school you don't have the right to go through your life without people knowing that you've committed these offenses because you are dangerous if you're allowed to operate in secret. So my question for Harvey is when he says rigorous accountability, what 
what kind of rigorous accountability is he talking about? Like that, that's, that's what comes next. Like, how is he? And yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical already because he seems to think that sex, that perpetration of sexual abuse and sexual violence is the same thing as sex addiction. That already tells me that there's something vital about the abuse of power inherent in sexual abuse that he's not grasping. Yeah, obviously. Never let them in leadership ever, including unlicensed counseling. I mean, that and that yeah. should be so obvious. It's frustrating that like <laughs> well she, she has to say that. Like that shouldn't be obvious to yeah. Right. Anyway. So let's find out what our dear friend Harvey says next. All right. So thank you. So I mean protected, not uh, I mean, only in the sense that we do whatever necessary to make sure that they don't uh, feel like they can reoffend and get by with it. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So, should we take them into our homes? Like, what, what should we be doing? Well, there is a. I need to brush up on my information here, but I know uh, I know there is a uh, a kind of program where every offender has some other responsible adults with whom they meet on a regular basis, just like uh, people do with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or something, and. Uh, where they uh, provide oversight. So uh, we have to find some way. I, I don't know that I have, uh, I might be able to get you uh, some information about a kind of program that aims to do what I'm describing. I would be very interested in seeing that information because some of like what the research shows is that, you know, people convicted of child molestation, they continue to recidivate regardless of how that is defined for more than 25 years. Mm -hmm. But recidivism rates of those convicted of rape tend to taper off within five years. Mm -hmm. And it comes from this study specifically. And then when you start talking about it, the risk then for child molestation is longer than other sex sexual crimes. Mm -hmm. Their peak risk is five to 10 years after their release. Yeah, and uh, pedophilia is another phenomenon that we need to uh, take a hard look at uh, as a psychological diagnosis. Uh, I think is a kind of uh, not fully understood sort of uh, orientation toward having a fascination with young boys or girls as compared to the normal kind of uh, passion we tend to develop for people uh, who are fellow adults. And so uh, I'm always hesitant to call this uh, an illness, the pedophilia thing, although it is listed as a DSM-5, you know, and all other diagnostic manuals as something that needs to be treated and taken seriously, of course. But uh, 
there is a kind of difference in the way some brains are wired in terms of just like, you know, I am very strongly wired for heterosexual attraction and some people are wired for attraction of people of their own gender. And we don't know altogether uh, why that is, but no matter what it is, every person is responsible for their own behavior and their own misbehavior. And there's never any excuse, regardless of what kind of diagnosis one might have for violating uh, a, an innocent child. Well, and I think that people often, one, think that violating a child is, is, is simply a sex addiction, when in fact, violating a child or abusing anybody Abuse is not about actual sex. Did you know that? Like, sexual abuse of a child is not necessarily about sex. It's about power and control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why they repeat it over and over and over. They get a sense of power and control from it. At least that's what I was taught in therapy. So, hey, Stephanie, would you like to weigh on in on the whole, like, pedophilia is an orientation comment? Not unlike like heterosexual or like, you know, yeah. homosexuality, which he couldn't even bring himself to say the word. <laughs> I mean, I, um, again, it's a whole mess of things in there because I'm not like, I, I certainly wouldn't say that we don't need more research on people who fit the clinical definition of pedophilia. Like I wouldn't, like, I think we do. I think we need to understand, like, why that that happens, but not, like, out of the context of social life and power. Because, I mean, I, here's, you know, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to speak about it in psychological language. But what I am going to say is, um, in, you know, in the, the history of the European-dominated world, um, the Western world, to use that terminology, we have a history of men being allowed to treat women and children and, you know, people of, people of, you know, non-cis genders as property. You know, like, our propensity for treating human beings as property in Western civilization is part of why we have such an egregious problem with child sexual abuse because you can go all the way back to the roman empire and see that one of the ways that patriarchs asserted ownership over women and children and their slaves was was through rape and mm -hmm. so we can't which is you i mean you called him out i think very clearly like this is about power and control it's not like talking about addiction and, you know, everything that, you know, on the one hand, he's giving, he's given some good lip service to accountability and, you know, we, we can't trust offenders not to reoffend. On the other hand, he's continually pulling um, his analysis of what motivates perpetration into the world of 
of of of illness even as he says you know illness and maybe sexual orientation then you know he and what? it's like i i think i think there's something really problematic i mean i, I increasingly i i have stopped using the word pedophile to describe people who sexually abuse children just because I feel like all the clinical baggage involved with it takes it like, like if somebody raped a child, they're a child rapist. Okay. Whether they fit the, the clinical definition of pedophilia is not of very much interest to me as an advocate, because one of my jobs is to spread awareness about the danger that that person poses. And I know that like, sometimes when you talk to people, you know, who, who are psychologists who spend time, you know, spend a lot of time understanding the psychology of people who commit these crimes, I know that they will frequently say, well, not everybody who commits uh, sexual violence against children is a pedophile. Not everybody who, you know, would fit the definition of a pedophile actually commits sexual abuse against children. Fine. Psychologists can have that conversation. I'm not convinced Harvey Yoder has a damn idea what he's talking about because he's <laughs> he's just saying a lot of stupid stuff. But what interests me as a person who is invested in accountability within communities is we hold people accountable for what they do. We don't like, like we are so obsessed with perpetrator psychology in this country. I mean, how many shows do we have about narcissistic sociopathic men who destroy people's lives? We're obsessed with their psychology. And I am more interested in the question of how we hold them accountable than I am in the psychology of why they're attracted to children. Because, right, you know, right. being attracted, like, I'm not even, like, why they're attracted to children doesn't even, for me, capture what they do. Are they attracted to children? That's not the question that interests me. The question is, are they violating children sexually? Are they violating children's boundaries in ways that groom them for, like, physical violation are they emotionally like <laughs> interacting with children in ways that are sexual or inappropriately developmentally inappropriate those are the questions that interest me and those are the questions that we need to act on not just obsessing endlessly about what the psychology is of offenders and you know he's continually mentioning offenders and victims you know as basically like in the same breath it's it's almost as if and and this is kind of like my personal opinion it's almost as if you can't have a conversation about victims and what services victims need mm -hmm. and the things that survivors have encountered and mm -hmm. what the communities need to do better you can't have that conversation without talking about offenders in the minds of Anabaptist people mm -hmm. because for them if if we leave the perpetrators of the abuse out of the conversation then we're not doing um we're not being giving them grace or extending them grace right yeah and it's like i i would say yeah what perpetrators need to be part of the conversation but they need to be part of the conversation because we still have Over to live with the consequences of what they do and we have to figure out how to hold them accountable but like like this obsession with with giving them grace and forgiveness is you know we don't we don't have within anabaptist circles we don't have um 
we don't have resources for doing that in ways that aren't spiritually abusive. Correct. We just don't. I mean, yeah. There just is no space for that. Shall we continue? Sure. I could be wrong, but. Well, I, I think it's, uh, you know, maybe not an either or here. It, it is power and control, obviously. And a uh, child is very vulnerable and powerless. And that makes this such a, a terrible thing. Uh, but of course, uh, I, I don't know of any exceptions. Uh, a person does get some kind of, you know, some kind of sexual orgasm or something in the process that where pleasure is somehow in the picture, even though, as you say, that's not the primary thing. And uh, it's not as simple as just saying, well, you just want to have uh, an orgasm and the child is, uh, because this is, uh, this is something. You think? Um, he, like, there is no, Un there's no understanding of rape culture here. Like, <laughs> um, we, oh, well, maybe it's pleasure and maybe it's power. No, power, power no, like, is, is sexualized. That's part of why sexual violence is like, like, that's part of how it's built into our culture is we have a, we have an eroticized idea of domination. That's rape culture. He's trying to separate, you said it's about power, and then he tried to separate those things. Well, maybe, you know, there's probably some power, there's probably some pleasure. Well, no, power, taking pleasure and harming another person is part of the, is part of the, the shit we're talking about here. <laughs> well, and, and so, like, that, this thing is, so, like, I've had many, many, many therapists, and, and that was one of the things that I, I learned from my very first therapist, is that it had nothing to do with actual sex. It was all about power. This is about people exercising their power over you. That's what mm -hmm. I learned in therapy. So, it, to me, it's a little bit, like, almost like I'm going back in the Stone Ages to hear him yeah. talking about this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think that we, we seem the idea of of power taking pleasure in abusing power. I think that is a like I think that is that is a thing that I I feel when I when I hear this the the way that Harvey talks about sexual abuse I feel like that's what people like him are in denial about that the pleasure the pleasure isn't just like the pleasure of having an orgasm or whatever no like, no the pleasure is the pleasure of abusing another person hurting another person yeah taking pleasure power. in taking yeah. taking power and control over that person's body and many times they do it violently Mm -hmm. That's why they leave these rape victims bleeding and cut up and they just, I, I'm not going to go into further detail. I think our um, listeners probably have heard enough trauma, but guess what? Even thoughts and prayers can't help us here. Yeah. 
I think that's true. But anyways, let's continue. See if I have anything golden to ask him now, because I think I was kind of probably struggling. That there's just no excuse for no matter what. There is no excuse. And you know what else? Like, in one of my conversations with Jimmy Hinton, um, one of the things that we we talked about was the whole how, like, abusers can walk into a room <clears throat> and within 30 seconds can pick out who their next victim is. Wow. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I, I uh, It's hard for me to get in anyone's skin to be able to just fathom how that would work. But I, I've heard the same kind <clears throat> of thing, yes. Well, and when I took, like, a self-defense class, one of the things that they taught me, too, is that anything that deviates you from the norm can make you a target. Mm -hmm. It can be as simple as the way you walk. It can be the way you carry yourself. It can be the way you interact with people, all of those things. And then they do test runs. Abusers sure. do test runs mm -hmm. that to see how you react to that. Sure. Sure, I can I can easily see where a person would, you know, their perception would be that one person in this group or several persons in a given group are more vulnerable and more and easier targets. Right. Yeah. Which is where, like, when you start looking into like some of the different things, so like children that have disabilities, one of the things I put it away, but. In that article, one of the things that Tara talks about is children who are perceived as different from the norm inside of their culture. Mm -hmm. They are automatically going to be at a higher risk. Mm -hmm. And maybe be more vulnerable, too, in that they not only rely on people more for assistance uh, in a variety of ways, mm -hmm. but may appreciate someone paying attention to them in a way that uh, because they have a lot more challenges to deal with in terms of navigating their way in a uh, community of people. Yeah. And I have a question for you in regards to that. When he says that, you know, children that are different, like they may appreciate somebody paying them more attention, is he... Is he really suggesting the idea that because children are disabled or they have like, let's just say they, they're neurodivergent or they struggle, that they're now going to appreciate that attention from the abuser? Well, or it's, is it, what, what is he trying to say? I don't know exactly what he's trying to say. I mean, again, it's, it's sort of like there's, there's a mix of things where like, Okay, like I might say that, but it would be in a completely like the way that I would contextualize it would be very different. Like, like he's he is in that bit there, he's alluding to the grooming process. And, you know, the grooming process, it when a offender, you know, when offenders are testing to see, okay, who who is protected? Who is going to have someone stand up for them? Um, 
who doesn't have the resources to set, to set their own boundaries, which children generally don't, but some children have more resources than others. Like if their parents have taught them what the actual words for their body parts are, for instance, that's one thing that protects a child who, you know, may not even know what the word is for, you know, her, her vulva or her butt, you know, or, or his penis or what have you like, that that's that's something that protects children and you you know we can certainly say okay here are things that that we need to teach children in order to make them less vulnerable but there has to be so much care there like like when <laughs> people the things that make people vulnerable are often then turned against them as well yes you were you know this is the thing that made that essentially like the fact that you needed it, you weren't getting attention at home maybe you know so it's it's not uncommon for people who groom and target children for sexual abuse to notice um who who isn't who is not being parented enough you know it doesn't mean that all children who are abused have negligent parents but that is you know like for instance you can look at the the people that Catholic priests targeted like a, a generation ago. Um, and it was often people who were being raised by single mothers and single mothers who felt that they needed to have a male, a, a figure of male authority because they're in this very patriarchal context. So they're more than happy to welcome the priest in, you know, I mean, that's, that's a, a thing that creates a specific vulnerability, like kids who ended up being being abused by those priests may well have been very happy for the attention initially. But the way, you know, the way he framed it there, especially given some of the other things he said, like it immediately sets off my, my victim blaming meter too. Okay. It's just like, yeah, yeah. yeah you're not, so, you're not crazy for feeling that. Yeah. Okay. So one of our listeners says someone just said that to me. Oh my God. And then has a follow-up com comment as far as the victim enjoyed the attention. <sighs> I I mean, okay. what I'm Stephanie so said, what Stephanie said, even if the child initially or the victim or the survivor initially enjoys that attention, when somebody crosses those boundaries and abuses those people, it does not feel good. It is not enjoyable. It is harmful and it hurts you. I yeah. was that child. And I'm telling you that. And we did not ask to be raped. We did not ask to be sexually assaulted. We did not ask to be thrown against the walls. We didn't ask to be beaten. We didn't ask for any of that. Yeah. So whoever that was, please let them know that it is not their fault. Thank you. Yeah. So that places yeah. them because they also have a lesser chance of like actually speaking up. Mm -hmm. Because they're they may have communication difficulties, mm -hmm. they may have, yes. yeah, and so that just makes them at a higher risk. Sure. Just Absolutely. automatically, um, when you start talking about autistic children, you start talking about LGBTQ children. When you start talking yes. about um, children who happen to have like some form of communication difficulty. Mm -hmm. Like let's say they, they use sign language to communicate mm -hmm. or they may be deaf or they may be blind, mm -hmm. like automatically they are placed at a higher risk. Absolutely. <clears throat> but anyways, so 
our our next thing um, that I really wanted to talk about a little bit is the silence. Like we were kind of talking about this is when you have good boundaries versus when you tell yourself it's not so bad. I can live through this. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when we were talking about that and we we wrote it down because we really wanted to t- t- touch on this? Yeah, so tell what me. Happens? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, is the sort of the feeling of a need for silence greater in a religious community uh, of the kind that we are have been a part of than in societies as as a whole. I think it is true of human beings in general that we, our first attempt to, you know, at our first response to any kind of wrongdoing is is to try to protect ourselves from consequences. So that's a, a normal human response. Uh, So communities need to be very clear about the kind of boundaries they set and how those boundaries are reinforced. Uh, Because left to ourselves, without that kind of education, without that kind of orientation, we will tend to do what in the short run feels like the least painful response. In other words, that I can, you know, if I can avoid even having this known and somehow it can be swept under the rug or let's just pretend, let's forgive and pretend this never happened. uh, That's going to be the first human impulse. So now you're talking about forgive and let's pretend it happened. That is, let's pretend it never happened. I call that shoving it under the rug. Mm-hmm. And I also want to point out that in my Amish communities, one of the things that I learned. That... Do you have anything to say, Stephanie, about that? You're muted. You're muted, sweetie. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't That's even okay. understand. I don't even understand what he's saying. Like, is he? He's, is he making a generalization about like human being? What is he saying about human beings in general? I don't even get it. Taking the easy way out. I, okay, I, I hate when people are like, human beings in general do this. No, you don't actually know that. Like, <laughs> like taking. <laughs> well, and, and I feel like it's, it's also a very um, skillful way of saying that survivors of abuse may take the easy way out rather than reporting it or, you know, going to the church. I just, in every, every way that he, every question that you ask him, it's his responses remove agency from survivors. He's not talking about, he's not talking to survivors. He's not talking about survivors as though they're people. I mean, I just, right. yeah. And no, Linda, you did not ask for any of that. You didn't deserve any you of not, that. You didn't deserve any of that. Yeah. Anybody who 
remotely implies that is is dealing in rape culture and victim blaming. Yeah. I I just I can't even understand what's happening here to be honest. Like um I, I think I I honestly I think that um you're throwing him curveballs. I I I'm not even he's not even particularly coherent at this point because I I'm not again I'm I want to understand what his purpose is for approaching you in the first place. You know, if it's to talk about his horror about sexual abuse and how you know plain communities need to address it. I'm not getting that here. What I'm getting is uh, like somebody who really wants to talk about perpetrators, <laughs> but he's not like, when you started talking about how perpetrators choose targets and about vulnerability based on things like disability and you know the, the things that lead perpetrators to target people, um, the, these are very basic, well-known concepts in the world of sexual prevention, and he's sort of nodding at you, like, "Yeah, no, that makes that, that makes sense." And it's just like, if 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 you're not like, you don't need to know how to get inside of a perpetrator's head in order to understand that this is how this is how perpetrators operate, like much of the time, because we have vast swaths of evidence showing this and he's not interested in evidence i i'm not i'm not getting i'm not getting interest in evidence from him he's speaking as though he's an expert but he's 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 not speaking in an evidence-based fashion right it's it's a little bit frustrating I mean, I'm frustrated by it right now. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm. F I'm fine. It's just, it's such a mix of lip service to good things, and this slippery, like, yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. But also, offenders, this and this and this. Here are things we can do for them. It, you know, I think. <laughs> there's not I, enough wine in the world for this yeah <laughs> i i it's a mess it's a mess and it which le just keeps leading me back to what harvey what were you hoping to accomplish and what was your motivation for coming onto the podcast of mary byler the misfit amish to talk about this why were you doing it because this is this is real messy, dude, and you're you're not making a lot of sense, and you're not speaking as somebody who has a great deal of expertise with anything but a particular ideological fixation, if you will. Oh, thank you. Should we continue <laughs> the 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 dumpster fire. I mean, how much, how much, did you have a specific point that you wanted to get to in the interview tonight? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's it's like, it's like three more minutes. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that. Growing up is, I must forgive to forgive is, it means you never speak of it again. He's sorry. Mm -hmm. You never speak of it again. But is that truly a definition of forgiveness? Well, I think it, 
it can be if forgiveness is a response to genuine acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, uh, a deep sense of remorse for the wrongdoing, a commitment to never doing it again, a commitment to having the kind of safeguards around you and accountability partners with you that can further reassure that this won't happen again, and a willingness to do whatever restitution is necessary. You know, may, it might involve paying for a therapist or someone that you've violated. Uh, it might involve some kind of compensation of some sort. So if one thoroughly repents, that is, makes a 180 degree turn and has is fully dealing with the weight of what they've done and facing it and not just minimizing it or avoiding it, then I, I do believe in forgiveness, but not cheap forgiveness, not forgiveness that's just based on, well, I feel badly, I feel terrible, etc. But forgiveness based on an actual change of direction uh, and with uh, uh, an accountability system built around you. But I, I think uh, what so, I think what Amish and other well-intentioned people have done is confused forgiveness with what I think of as a kind of a radical love for enemies. That is love for people who who do wrong to you. And that love doesn't mean you overlook the crime. It means that you see that person as a human being who is capable. You know, that's a really, really good question, Stephanie. I put it in private chat. Should we put it yeah. here? So Stephanie yeah. asks, why are we assuming good intention of the Amish as a group? And yeah, I mean, go ahead. What would you like to say about that? <laughs> well, I mean, there, like, there are two of us here, and only one of us has been Amish. So, um, well, so so the interesting thing about Harvey is, remember, he was Amish too, mm -hmm. but his experience with Amish differed vastly from my experience. You think maybe? But also, it's it's a fact of like there's a assumption of good intentions because Amish branding is good. It's almost like he buys into the narrative that people like Donald Grable, Steve Nolt, Karen Johnson, who writes about Amish, the lives of Amish women. Okay. The, the lives of Amish women. I'm sorry, but that book is so gross. It made me almost throw up. Okay. The people like, Oh God, what's her name? Jeanette Harder. All of these people, along with the mainstream media in America, have sat here. Oh, and let's not forget the romance novel people. Yeah. They have sat here. And they have over and over, they have perpetuated a narrative where anybody who wants to talk about child sexual assault inside of Amish communities basically gets it all brushed under the rug. And they buy into the narrative that Amish are just these 
good, godly, forgiving folk who can do no wrong. They forget that these people are just people. And inside of every group of people, there are some bad people. Period. Yeah. And there are particular formations of, you know, human, of human community that we know make, like, create the conditions that foster sexual abuse. One of them is patriarchy. Another one of them is isolation and sectarianism. Like, the Amish as a community, yeah, they're just people. And like, like I've, I've said before, like they, they behave the way people behave in these particular kinds of formations, which is like the incentives to abuse power are great. And when you are disempowered within that community, you are really disempowered. So I, the way that he, I, I mean, one, the, one of the central things that I would like to talk about in the way that he talks about forgiveness is that he's not talking, he's he's really interested in what the offenders do to earn forgiveness. He hasn't even talked about who has the, who, who gets, to, who's doing the forgiving. Survivors are not part of the conversation at all. It's like, you believe in forgiveness? Okay, he but- He cuts them out. He cuts them out completely. Who, like that, that's, you know, that's the next question I'd want to ask him, you know, if- you know, I had any faith that he would respond in good faith or that it wouldn't just make him want to drink more wine. But like the next question I'd want to ask him is, so who who gets to say when forgiveness is appropriate? Is it is it the bishop? Is it like who gets to determine that the perpetrator has made a 180? Who determines what is the power hierarchy in the community that is making that determination? And what role does the survivor and or survivors, there's usually more than one, what role are they playing in that? Like if you're if you're just eliminating them from the entire conversation, then like go, you know, you're just blowing smoke out of your ass. So I don't know if Mennonites do this, but inside of Amish communities, if you have committed a gross sin. Also, I have a really bad echo for some reason. Um Hmm. I don't know. I, I don't, but uh, shoot. Yeah. Uh, Did it start? Let me see. No, it's gone now. Okay. Maybe. Sometimes, so, so like, if you get in trouble with the church, like, more than likely, two of the ministers or the or a minister and a deacon they'll come talk to you and then they're the ones who decide so they take it back to the entire church ministry and those five people like the bishop the ministers and the deacon they all get together and they discuss your sins and whether or not you're repentant so do the people who you violate have any say in this at all they go talk to you the offender. And they make the determination. That was my experience with my church ministry. I mean, that's every, every person I've talked to from plain background has told me something similar. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. When you don't so, have any power, it, it's, it's a great situation for an offender who wants to get away with it. Right. I mean, when, when, <laughs> I mean, with mainstream Mennonites, I, I would, it, it's not like that necessarily, except when it is. <laughs> I guess the structures of like MCUSA churches are more like 
modern in appearance. Um, but you know, who has, who has power is often, um, like the hierarchies aren't necessarily as, as, as rigid as they might be in a, you know, in a super, uh, legalistic authoritarian plain community. But that doesn't mean that, like, like sometimes power isn't particularly visible. Like, like I've worked with a number of survivors who have been in Mennonite communities who assume good of people and then find out um, how much power they like, how much power they don't have when they try to ask for accountability from people who they assumed were well intentioned. So, I mean, I I think that I think that things like like race, things like fitting in, um, fitting in with the sort of social culture of the particular church, um, having the right last name because Mennonites are still, you know, ethnically obsessed, um, you know, gender, obviously. <laughs> all, yep. all of those things play a role in how much power you have in mainstream Mennonite communities. Um, for sure. It's just, it, it feels looking, looking from the outside in at what I perceive in plain communities, it sees, seems like the hierarchies are more set in stone. I might be oversimplifying, but. Well, they may be more defined. Yeah. Um, but you know, either way we've got patterns that are like the subject of forgiveness is just so frequently like when survivors are brought in, it's, well, you need to do this in order to heal. Well, that's, that's absurd. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah. You don't ever and, have to forgive somebody to heal. No. Thanks. No. That's, no. That, that's a that, statement. It's a fact. Yeah. And it's not even open for discussion. It's just a fact. Yeah. But let's, let's finish this last like couple. Okay. Thing. So we can have questions and, and you know, our comments. Capable of or in desperate need of redemption and change. And we, uh, but when and if that change really occurs, and it is, uh, there are people that can testify to the fact that it is happening, it's genuine, and the safeguards are there, then I do. We just, your mic, your mic. Uh, am I not coming through clearly? No, you've got a buzzing sound. Uh, I don't know what is causing that. I don't hear anything. Oh, yet. now you're clear. Okay. I'm sorry. It's okay. So, uh, I also believe in, in loving enemies. But that doesn't mean I leave enemies off the hook. It means I care for them as a human being who is a creation of God, just like I am. But I am, you know, loving toward people, but very clear and uh, definite in terms of my not, not condoning evil behavior. So, does that involve, like, loving them enough to report them to law exactly. enforcement so it's that in... then they can be held accountable to the highest form of the law yes. as any other citizen in America? And then 
let me ask you this, like, I don't know if you know this or even if this, you cannot answer this question if you don't want to. But my question for you is, is like, when do you think that Amish and Anabaptist churches will start holding that same amount of compassion for victims that they put out for offenders? Okay, so I, I can't listen to any of this anymore. I, I gotta stop. Okay. Not tonight. <laughs> Not tonight. Okay. Um, but I think that's an excellent question, right? Yeah. It's a really good question. And uh, I don't, I'm curious how he answered it, but not. But do you, do you want to watch it tonight? No, I, no, 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 no. I, if, if you're done, <laughs> we're done. Like his, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I got to like close this video. I can't. Yep. He, it's so toxic. It's, oh, yeah. So we do have a comment here. And also, guys, if you want to, if you have questions, feel free to write them in the comments and we would be happy to answer them. But this one says, I tried for years to forgive and forget, yet here I am and I can forgive if I choose to do so. But I will never forget and I will not sit down and be silenced. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no moral advantage to forgetting and being silent. It's not more virtuous. It doesn't make you a better human being. Like forgive and forget is, is like forgetting is not how you break a cycle of violence. Well, and what the, the attempt of forgetting do to people who have PTSD? It's devastating. It's, we, yeah. I, do, do you think in a way that when people who have PTSD, they attempt to just forget it and stuff it down and it's like this denial that it ever actually happened, do you think that is in any form harmful to the survivor? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not speaking as a therapist, I'm speaking as an advocate. You know, mm -hmm. I'm speaking as somebody who frequently sort of accompanies survivors through attempts at getting accountability from abusive, from communities that have enabled their abusers or computer or communities that have piled on and become complicit and, you know, all. So, so what I observe is that um, there's, and, and what I've experienced in my own life is that there's a great deal of healing that comes with accepting reality and what happened and like there's a there's a phrase from from a book that i love um it's the book <laughs> the book six of crows that my cat inej who was making appearances last week is named after um a character in there and and that character there's a moment when she says better terrible truths than kind lies and that is something that I go back to as an advocate when I'm tempted to soften the truth about what I think is going to happen because I don't want, I, I, I want to protect somebody. And I have to remember, it, it, it never protects people to deceive them about reality. And I do think that there's, I mean, if I can talk for a second about like the things that make a community healthy, I think in Mennonite and 
I'm sure Amish circles, there are a lot of survivors who don't want to face what happened to them. And so they become, <laughs> they become um, complicit in a community's abuse of other survivors because it's easier to fight other survivors and to fight reality than it is to accept, yes, in fact, this happened to me too. I think there's, I, I mean, I just think there's a tremendous amount of harm that happens for that reason. Um, so, you know, it, it, it really is one of the ways that we break cycles of communal violence is by refusing to forget, <laughs> refusing, refusing to, to forgive if forgiveness, like people are going to define forgiveness in all kinds of ways. I mean, I it kind of drives me crazy that like we talk about it as though we all agree on what it is. Well, no, we don't. I mean, I've had plenty of survivors say I can forgive, but I'm not like what Linda said, I can forgive, but I'm not, I'm not going to forget. And I have a suspicion that they're defining forgiveness differently than the, you know, than maybe a Bishop would, <laughs> you know, I, I, um, I have some words for you. Okay. Okay. I have been labeled a few times by a few different things, such as disobedient, unforgiving, mm -hmm. defiant, bitter. Mm. And I'm here to tell you, if me talking about what happened to me and what was done to me as a child makes me all of those things, bring it. <laughs> I'm just going to be sitting here drinking coffee. Y'all have fun. Preach. I don't, I don't have the time or energy to sit there and argue with people who are determined and committed to misunderstanding me and who I am and what I'm about. But, you know, that's my opinion. Everybody has to find their way of working through and living with what happened. Do you know what I get accused of? Uh, witchcraft? <laughs> I mean, I should... are, are you a Satanist now? <laughs> well, I was going to say what I get accused of is trying to destroy the church and Mennonites. <laughs> and I like, I'm sort of like, I mean, it, it used to really upset me. And now I'm like, um, okay. Yeah, like if the bullshit that you're defending is is the church that you think I'm trying to destroy, yes, of course I'm trying to destroy it. I mean, if that's what uh, this, okay, let me let me come on, yeah, bring it. Okay, so questions. What is your understanding of forgiveness? Um, you want to take a stab at that? Boy, I... sure, I guess I can. So personally, I think that forgiveness for me just means that you don't wish any ill will towards the person. Doesn't mean you have to forget what happened. Doesn't mean you have to even rebuild a relationship with them or have contact with them. You don't ever have to talk to them again. You can talk about it as much or as little as you want to. It's up to you. This is your choice and it is something that is very personal to you and Nobody ever has the right to demand that you give people forgiveness. It's my personal opinion. What about you? Um, 
I mean, honestly, forgiveness feels like kind of an empty concept for me because I've never, I, I, I'm sort of like, there are human beings who have done things to me that have caused me to never want to have anything to do with them again. And there are people who have done things or who, you know, I, it's not like I'm somebody who's never caused harm in my life. Like I'm grateful when people are like, you know what, you took responsibility for what you did so we can still be in relationship. And I can, ex I can extend that to other people, but words like grace and forgiveness are really tough for me because I've just heard Christians use them in so many icky ways that I tend to have completely different language for talking about what does it mean to be in relationship with people when they're, when they have caused harm to you or you have caused harm to them. And like, when it comes to like sexual violence, I'm like, like it is a extraordinary. That's a, that's a no go. Yeah, it's an extraordinary situation where a, a survivor and a perpetrator would be in relationship ever again. Like, there's hardly what, whatever. Yeah. Right. But, like, then, like, so, for example, if, like, let me give you an example of, like, a situation where you may have a relationship where, let's let's just say you you do something that is is harmful to somebody and it's something that isn't at the same level like it's not at an abusive act necessarily mm -hmm. um and you take accountability for that and you change your actions right and you apologize right that i would be more inclined to forgive yeah but that's different than sexually assaulting somebody or molesting, you know, abusing a child or, yeah. you know, like that's a, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that um, we shouldn't conflate abuse and harm. They're not the same thing. Right. They're two different things. Yeah. I mean, how like, do you for example, if, if like I accidentally like broke something of that, that had value and it was an accident but I did it because I was careless and I could have taken better care. I take mm -hmm. accountability and responsibility for that. Sure. Right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. next question. How do you forgive someone that is not sorry or repentant? I don't um, know. Why would you? You don't have to. Why would you forgive yeah. them? Yeah. Uh, eh, I don't actually prescribe to that theology so i can't really i'm not an expert by any means but i don't prescribe to that theology yeah i don't i don't either i think that's a i mean what what i find is that like when christians talk about repentance especially when they're talking about repentance for sex offenders that what they mean by repentance tends to be if you say you're, you're sorry in a way that affirms like my idea of reality, like but they, there's so many perpetrators are very good at apologizing in ways that, that increase sympathy for themselves. And so I like the idea of, I don't know. I mean, repentance is another one of those words that I'm like, I I've heard it applied to so many people who go on to do, to do further great harm, to commit more abuse, to commit more sexual violence that I'm like, I don't ever trust a Christian when they say somebody's repented. <laughs> like, what does that mean? 
And and who decides that again? Is it is it the ministry? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think this is why so many churches are bad. <laughs> yes. We definitely see hypocrisy in it. Yeah. And again, that that hypocrisy and like the the ubiquity of that hypocrisy is part of why Christians are are really like pretty yep. bad at this. Pretty bad at holding people accountable for this kind of abuse. Yep. Yeah. Forgiveness does not re require reconnection. Yes, that is. Hashtag facts. I'm telling you that. Mm -hmm. I like the concept of grave sin or yeah. mortal sin. I know it sounds like a religious concept, but those are serious things that cause irreparable harm. Thank you. Yeah. So I think one of the things is, is when you start talking about abusive acts versus like just typical run of the mill, like things that may happen in the course of your day, like Stephanie said, it's very important to articulate between abuse and harm. It's two different things. And and the the language around sin, I think I think is a good thing to talk about because what what I will often hear, especially evangelical Christians say is like, well, we don't have a racism problem, we have a sin problem, or we don't have an abuse problem, we have a sin problem. And to me that's just a way of changing the subject and overgeneralizing so that you don't actually have to deal with the issues at hand. So if you're talking, if you're working within a religious framework and you are talking about sin, I think it's really good to be like, have designations for like, no, like if, if you think that, if you think that drinking a glass of wine is a sin, um, are, are you conflating it with raping a child? Because if you are, then we have a problem with our, with our sin framework. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, I'm sorry. But if somebody drinks like two glasses of wine in front of me and they feel bad about that, that that's on them. I don't care about that. Sure. But if they rape a child, then I'm going to have a problem. Well, and I mean, I'm sure you've run into this. I certainly have. There, I, I find that a lot of Christians are more offended by the the words that we use to talk about sexual abuse than they are by the sexual abuse it, it's, itself. Like, like, like I've <laughs> seen Christians like rewrite rewrite liturgy and prayers to take out the word rape because they feel like the word rape is divisive. And it's like, I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say to you. Why don't it, we worry about the fact that it happens? They, it's just another way that they are silencing mm -hmm. and rewriting the narratives is something that is more palatable for them. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I'm kind of sick of it. Yeah. Me too. And I also refuse to talk that way about it. Do you have any final words before we end this? Um, well, that, I mean, that was a shit show. <laughs> um, and it was, I think, probably like really triggering for a lot of people. And I mean, at some point I saw somebody made a comment like, it's really hard for me when I when I hear men who talk this way because I I you know I respond to them the way I respond to perpetrators, <laughs> um, and like that like that's a feeling that shouldn't be ignored uh, at all. <laughs> like I yeah 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 I I, I see why 
I see why. Because he, it, it, it's, yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really gross. I think it's also important if you are watching this and you've made it through this far, you know, I want to remind you that as survivors, you know, be, try to be gentle with yourself and only do as much as you can. And also take good care of yourself. You know, this is a brand new year. Happy 2022. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming up this year. And we're going to have those conversations that we keep having. And we're not going to stop. Because we're going to change things eventually, someday. Amen. Ugh. How'd that come out of my mouth? You better say praise me. Thoughts and prayers. Praise me. Thoughts and prayers. This concludes today's episode of the Disobedient Women. I share a hope all of you held on to your hats and bonnets and your buggy seats and drank lots of water. And I certainly hope that we will see you again. I hope you all have a beautiful and wonderful day. It's time for that brandy old fashioned.